you have a Bible this morning and you'll read with us, we're going to take a reading from the book of Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. We're going to begin reading in the 15th verse and read down to verse 23. Ephesians chapter 1, beginning in verse 15, and reading down to verse 23. Paul here is writing to a church, one that he personally knew. You go back to Acts chapter 19, you'll learn that on Paul's second missionary journey is whenever he entered into Ephesus, and there was a lot of activity there. There was a lot of resistance that he was met with, and um, it's worth looking back and seeing the context of who these people are, their endurance under hardship, and you see that in, in Acts chapter 19. This is a few years later, and Paul is writing, and he's in a Roman prison, and he is writing to strengthen their faith. And um, this is a positive book in the sense that he is instructing, encouraging. He's not chiding them. It's not the tenor of the book or the tone of the book. That's compared to, say, 1 Corinthians, where he's definitely chiding somebody. Um, And they're doing a lot wrong. Uh, Here he's not doing that. He has just finished his introduction into the letter. And now he has told them in verse 15, we'll read in verse 15 and 16, that he is praying for them. And I might make note here, um, just a moment, perhaps a pet peeve of mine, and I don't want to labor the point too hard, but... That's quite the commitment that he's making to somebody to pray for them. Um, In our English, or in our culture today, that's become a a byword or a phrase that's just flippantly thrown at people to encourage them in the moment. I'll pray for you. Um, Don't do that. Don't say that, unless you mean it. Um, Prayer is a serious thing with serious implications. And my commitment to you when I say I'm going to pray for you is one that ought to be counted on. It gives me great encouragement when people whom I know have an active and vibrant relationship with God say they will pray for me. You have no doubt been the beneficiary of hearing your name in somebody else's prayer. That is particularly meaningful when someone is making progress in prayer. Now, if you don't know what I mean, I mean when you are hearing somebody and the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, is enabling their prayer. And you can hear the Holy Spirit enabling their prayer. It's not an fluency of speech. I can't give some adjective to describe what it sounds like, but I know it when I hear it. And 
when I hear that person really prevailing in prayer on my behalf, I treasure that more than any gift any person could give me. Because I know that someone whom God loves and has enabled to pray is bringing my needs before the all-powerful, almighty God. And Paul here is in prison, which just, to me, doubles the emphasis. He is not focused on himself and what has befallen him and the prospects of likely death. It's not what he's thinking about. He's not thinking about the prospects of likely torture. His mind is still free, though his body is confined. And he says that in a number of his letters. My spirit is free. I have liberty. And a prison cannot confine prayer. So Paul here is making this commitment. He's saying, I'm praying for you. And then he tells us particularly what he is praying for them. And before we get into the message and and, and read our text, I want to make note of that. When you pray for someone, and, and I want to be careful how I say this because I don't want it to be misunderstood. Um, what exactly are you praying for them? Like if I say, if I looking at Brother Brian here, if I say, Lord, help Brother Brian. What does that mean? I don't necessarily think that our prayers are meant to be that, at times, general and passive. Now, the question I would ask is this. Am am I I saying something that general because I'm not taking time to really pray? Because true prayer is from what I have found, is a very time-consuming activity. Because when I think about Brian and his needs, whether they be general ones that all of our church members have, or specific ones to his life and his circumstance, to get all of that out is going to take a minute. And to get it out in a fashion with conviction... Meaning, I care about it. It is as though it is my own. You wonder how people pray for an hour or two hours, or you hear stories of people gone by who do that. When you really pray and you really learn to pray, not that we ever fully develop that ability, but certainly we can progress in it. You can get better at praying. You can grow deeper in your ability to commune and abide and communicate with God. Paul here is giving us this wonderful template. And if you ever struggle in prayer, here's a good place to start. Go to to places in the Bible where people are praying and read it. And break it down. And you can see here in the very least for this church, it is a very deep 
desire he has for these people. So when he tells them, I am praying for you, and here's what I am praying. As we go through some of these things, it is deep. Now, why is that significant? Because his desires for their lives are deep. So take the one whom we prayed for this morning. Wellness is not sufficient to me. Triumph. Abounding in spiritual power and purpose. Conquering, not surviving. Conquering those demonic and personal sinful forces that fight all of us. That is the prayer that we ought to have for one another. Because when, our, when the tenor of our prayer towards God is that he might, if you imagine a battle or if you imagine a game, and you think of a game and you know Satan's got a certain score on the scoreboard and, and God's got a certain score, I just want him to barely win and eke it out. It's very often how the tenor of our prayer can become towards people. Lord, just help them barely hang on to the victory. I don't want that for you all. I don't want you to just barely stay above water, grow just a little bit and avoid sin in the process. I want more for you than that. And Paul's prayer shows that. His desire for them was not shallow and passive that the persecution which might come upon them, they would hang on to and survive and not many people would die. That's not what he's asking for. No, in the midst of hardship and persecution, he is wanting them to abound and grow and prosper and conquer. And so this prayer to me is a a wake-up call to our prayer lives. It's to reflect and consider when you pray, first, are you praying shallow? Secondly, what exactly are you praying? Are you praying for a depth to people's needs? Now, if you are not familiar with prayer or how to pray, said one thing you can do is you can go to the scriptures and you can read these prayers, and that's a very helpful thing. But here's another recommendation I would give you. There are many spiritual disciplines. That's, uh, that's an old term that people used to use, spiritual disciplines. We know that they're studying the Bible. We know that there's the fellowship of brothers and sisters. It's a spiritual discipline that we ought to attend to. There's prayer. There's meditation. Not the kind that the world promotes, but biblical meditation. There's all these spiritual disciplines. And very often in our day, there is this um, hesitance, insecurity. And therefore, there have been men and women who have stepped into those insecurities and said, this is how you do it. Twelve steps to pray better. Ten steps to read your Bible more fully. And I don't want to discount that there are helpful things that we can learn because there are. But when we engage in prayer, the best way to do it is by praying. 
to get better at it. That's how you get better at prayer. And to set yourself in prayer and say to God, God, I am horrible at praying. And because I just met with somebody a couple of weeks ago who, when we were talking about some of these spiritual disciplines, this is one of the things that they said to me. They said, I avoid prayer because I am so bad at it. That might be you. You just feel like it's just, it's a hard. Prayer is hard. You're never going to learn how to do it until you engage in it deeply. You set yourself and you say, you know what, I've got all these work goals. You know, one of the things that we don't talk about much is having an aim in our Christian life. I want to get to my message, but I feel like these, these preliminary comments are important. Having an aim in our Christian life. So let me ask you this. Right at this moment, what is the aim of your Christian life? You can, lift all, you can list off the traditional status quo you know, things that, well, I've got to live righteously and not sin, and I've got to do this and that. It's not, imagine if you just went to work and said, well, I've just got to get everything done you're probably going to be ineffective or less than effective at least. Here, I would say, say to yourself, ask God, my aim this month is to develop my ability to pray. Now, again, I, that, that has a superficial sound to it and I hate, hate that. In short, what I'm trying to say is if you want to get better at praying, ask God to help you and set your mind towards getting better at prayer. God can help you pray. Paul gives us this template. And notice as we read this, the depth of his prayer for these people. Verse 15, Ephesians chapter 1. Wherefore I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and love unto all the saints, cease not to give thanks for you, making mention of you, In my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling and what the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power to usward who believe, according to the working of his mighty power, which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places. Far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come. And hath put all things under his feet and gave him to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. I'll conclude our reading this morning and the title of our message this morning is simply going to be Paul's Prayer for the Ephesian Church. Paul prayer, Paul's Prayer for the Ephesian Church. Now, I can already tell I'm not going to get to the things that I had intended to, and so you pray that I'll just go where the Lord would have me to in this prayer. A couple things about this prayer before we jump into the exact wording that we find here in this text. Um, I don't want to be too simplistic here, and it's going to come off that way. And so know that I know it's not this simple, but I'm going to state it in this fashion anyway because I don't know how else to. 
There are often two types of people in the world. People who cling to what they know and people who recognize that what they don't know might be a missing key that they need. Or in other words, always striving to know more. Not to accumulate. Not so at some dinner party when the topic comes up, you can fact drop all the things that you know. It's not the purpose of it, and there are many people who pursue that for that reason. But have you ever had the experience when you're living life, perhaps in a narrow sphere of your life, there is something you didn't know. And then you come to know something, and it changes everything. Or it completely reconfigures how you see the world, or some things in the world. I'll give you an example. Five or six years ago, I was sitting in these pews at the minister school. I had just written a, a series, it's probably 100 pages or more, workbook on the book of Romans. And we published those, and we, we took those over to Africa and tried to help some of the young preachers and, and, um, and deacons over there to learn. And sat here, I remember exactly what pew, I remember exactly everything. It, just, it was so impactful. And one of the teachers got up and started teaching me the book of Romans. And throughout that lecture, lesson, 30 or 40 minutes, not that there weren't some things that I didn't know because there was, but there was nothing too surprising. Things that I had studied before, read before, little nuances to meaning that were enlightening but not transformative. And then about 10 minutes before the end, the teacher got to Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. One that you have heard probably preached on a lot. I beseech you, therefore, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so on and so forth. You've heard that. Preachers have gotten up and preached that probably every year since this church was established, because it's a very common and good text. As he was explaining those two verses he began to teach something that was transformative to me. It shook my world. And he got done, and there were probably five or six ministers around me, and we all stood up and we looked at each other with big eyes. And somebody said, I have never heard anything like that before. And we were all just quiet because it shook us. And it caused me after the fact to go back and there were so many things about the New Testament that now having this piece of knowledge just floodlights open to understanding more of what I was reading. Now, for many, it probably wasn't that transformative because they probably knew it. But it created within me this deep eagerness to just look with these new eyes. Now, 
the way that I often view life is like this. My natural, or excuse me, my spiritual sight is very dim. And what I am constantly needing is for God to provide a little more light. A little more light. And a little more light. That there are depths of understanding about this world, about the one to come, about God, about myself, about others, about all of this. That presently I cannot and do not see. And yet, that knowledge which I do not have is essential for some things that need to transpire both in my life and the life of people around me. And so what I need is for God to open my eyes more, shed more light on the world. Now, one of the dangers of getting older is that there can, if people aren't careful, because one tends to learn more than what they did know, and because one tends to learn more than those that are younger than them, there can be, grow this apathy towards that mentality. Or in other words, I have set the way that I see the world and this is the way the world is and this is the way I'm going to see it. Or this is the way God is and this is the way I'm going to see it. And that's dangerous. So imagine in your spiritual life that there is a whole set of things that are absolutely life-changing that at this present moment you and I don't know. And if you knew them, they would radically change you because the things that we come to know change what we believe, how we feel, what we think, and ultimately what we do. If you knew that this church was on fire, I've used that example before, it would change what you're doing right now. If you knew tomorrow was going to be your last day, it would change, likely, what you say. Knowledge changes all of those things. At the core of Paul's prayer for the Ephesian church, this is at the heart of it. It is that they would know and see what they're presently not seeing. That was what his prayer was. Now, The interesting thing about the rest of the book is then in chapter 2 and chapter 3, he tries to unveil these very, very rich spiritual truths about Jesus. So, let me, again, I'm trying to get here, but so many things are necessary to get into before we, we look at this text. Here's often what a Christian wants. Here's, let me rephrase that. Here's often what a young, immature Christian wants. They want to know how to do and how to live. The action. Or, we've called it before, the imperative. There's indicatives and there are imperatives in the Bible. Indicatives describe what is, the truth. Imperatives say, in lieu of that, here's how you need to live. Now, very often it is desirous within our hearts is just tell me what to do. So imagine, I think of Brother Micah and Brother Coy, they, they, they work with electricity. And if somebody came to them or if they themselves just memorized what to do and did not know why they were doing it, they would be dangerous 
to themselves and to others. And so what they have to have is an understanding of how the whole thing works. Because if they don't have that holistic understanding, then if somebody else makes a mistake that affects their job, they'll not be able to to discern when that person has made a mistake and it'll put them and others at risk. They've got to know the why behind it all. Same thing with the doctor, right? You don't want your doctor just to know what medicines to prescribe when somebody comes in with a runny nose. No, you want a doctor who knows all the background of anatomy and physiology and, and all the different effects that viruses can have and the conflict that medicines can have one with the other so that whenever they're hearing things that perhaps other doctors have prescribed, they can say, hold on a minute. So Paul begins with this whole book by telling them, Here are the facts and the truth about Christ, about his church. Here's the truth about those things. Now, very often as a young Christian, what we want to do is we want to come in here and say, this is how I live. And if you're only wanting to know how you're to live and what your spiritual commands are, then once those things get tried and tested, there is no root that will keep you to those things. And so Paul's prayer first is that the Lord's church there in Ephesus would come to know or have revealed to them the depth of who he is. Look what it says in verse 17. Here's his prayer for them. 15 and 16 tells him he's going to pray for them. 17 says this, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him. Now let's look at that verse 17 for just a moment. May give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation. Now, if you look at that word spirit in the King James, that is not capitalized. We know that in the King James, whenever there's a, it's referring to the Holy Spirit, it capitalizes the S. Well, in Greek, it doesn't do that. So we don't know, is this talking about the Holy Spirit? Or is this talking about our spirit? We can't tell that. And so you can study that on your own, read that on your own, and you're going to have to come to your own conclusion about what that's talking about. I'll give you what I think it's talking about. That he might give unto our spirit, so that the Holy Spirit might shape our spirit, might give to our spirit, this inner man, wisdom and the knowledge of Jesus Christ. So, Going back for just a moment to what we said a minute ago, there are things about Christ. There are wisdoms to know about the depth of his person that you and I presently don't know. And Paul is saying, I want you to know that that God would give. Now notice this, those things are given. This is a big thing that the religious world today has gotten wrong. Many will advocate all you do is you open up the Bible and you read it and then you come to this additional wisdom and understanding about the person of Jesus Christ. And certainly I would not say to you this morning that the study of the scripture is in any way going to be harmful to you. But notice that what Paul's prayer is to God is that he, the Father, would impute to them wisdom and knowledge about Jesus that they could not otherwise find unless it is given to them. In other words, true spiritual growth and closest to God is given, 
not worked for. Although working towards that, it does not mean we do not work towards that. God has to give it. He continues in verse 18, and he says this, The eyes of your understanding, that word means heart. So let's look at it like this. The eyes of your heart being enlightened. Now, I know you know what the word enlightened means. The use of the very word implies darkness or lack of understanding. So he's saying, presently, your heart does not understand, does not know something. It is in the dark. Now, notice he said, your heart. It's really important. How many things, I can go back to this experience at the minister school. I I could have at that time quoted that verse. I could have told you some of the Greek words in there. I could have told you some of the history, all those things I could have told you before the moment when he was teaching. But there was still a veil over my heart that could not spiritually comprehend the depth of what that verse was revealing. And so in that moment, as the man of God is up teaching the word of God and the spirit of God is involved in that, my heart, not just my mind, it is going through my mind, but it is deeper than that. My heart is coming to this understanding and it is as though I am walking through the darkness or that the lights are very, very dim and I can kind of see the substance of things, of the big objects that I know there is something there, but the small objects that are, are, are around me, I cannot see. And then all of a sudden, it is as though the light came on and was burning brighter. And now I saw with more clarity what was previously concealed from my heart. And my strategy, if I was trying to get to the back of the room, would completely be changed because now I can see. Not only these big, bold objects that are right in front of me that can cause great harm, but also the small ones. Here, he's saying, I want your heart to have an understanding. So let me pause for a moment and get you to consider in yourself. Again, this is instructive. This is not rebuking. So I hope this morning you don't take it that way. I want you to take it instructive. The way that you view your life, your Christian life, and I hate to even put that word on there, but your Christian life, your relationship with God, is it something where you're constantly seeking more revelation, more light, more understanding? acknowledging the fragility and feebleness of the present state of your heart, that it is insufficient to help others to navigate the world that you're living in, to honor God, that what you and I have right now is insufficient and that you need more and that your heart is set towards having more. Now, certainly if you're a parent and your kids are grown in any sense, you know that very often what happens, and I've expressed to you before, my guilt of being an arrogant young teenager who really believed that I knew it and I got it. And perhaps what reinforced that is that I was more insightful than some of my peers. And it gave me the illusion 
that because I was more insightful than some of my peers, I had a good grasp on things. And now I, I, I'm, shamed, I'm shamed, and I still at times repent towards God for the attitude and thoughts that I used to have. And it was that conceitedness. It was that, I've got this. Is your spiritual life one of trying to ascertain something you do not presently have? Or is it cruising with the present understanding that you do have? Because if that is the case, you're forfeiting the greatest blessings that you have yet to experience. In other words, there's a lot more. I've told you this story before, probably, when I would go to a family member's house when I was a kid for Christmas. It was, we always did it on Christmas Eve, and we'd come out in this family member's house, and they had a really big living room and about a 12-foot tree, and, and we'd walk into the room, and there were just presents everywhere. It was just, you know, there was kind of an extended family Christmas, and there were presents everywhere. And I knew probably in that group of presents, there are five to six that are mine. And, but it was just such an exciting feeling until there was another room next to this room. And in that room, there were a ton more presents. I mean, a whole lot more presents. And those presents were reserved for the children which occupied that house the next morning. And I've often thought, how satisfied are we with the few things around the tree when there are rooms that God has of riches yet to be shown to us that all we have to do is seek until we find it and he gives it to us. Paul prays, and both of the concepts of those prayers is to communicate to this church, there is more for your hearts to understand and see. One of the miraculous things to me about the scriptures, especially about reading about Christ and the cross, is I find it the same facts exist. How many times have I gone to the end of the Gospels and read the same facts over and over and over and over again? And yet, somehow, at times, when I'm going through those things, God will show light. And it causes me to understand the story in a completely different way than what I ever did. If you want to pray for somebody in your life, that you feel like is missing understanding. Pray like this. Lord, now, here's very often what we do as a substitute for praying for them. Are you listening, mothers? Because this can particularly be a a fault of mothers. We want to force it in there ourselves. Right? We are so, we, we love the person So much. And we want them to experience the gifts that God has provided that they don't yet know about so desperately that rather than doing... Now, certainly God has taught us to instruct them and advise them and encourage them. But if you're saved by God's grace, you know the times where you are taking that duty and taking it too far where I am trying to thrust into them. You've seen preachers do that before, no doubt. They get up, 
and the tone changes from instruction and even perhaps justifiable rebuke to, I'm mad at you because you're not grabbing this. If you really have faith in God and you really know that it is he alone that can give what man cannot, that all that energy that you pour into trying to convince and argue and guilt and change the mind of, pour into God in prayer because he alone can be the one through the understanding of the scriptures, through the preaching of the gospel, through their own life experience. Your children may have an experience in life which though has risk involved, may be the one thing that changes everything about the way they see the world. And it transforms them in a moment. And it accomplishes more in one moment of time than what a hundred years of you trying to beat it into them could cause. Because changing the orientation of a person's heart is not within the capability of man. And let me tell you, I agonize about that a whole lot. Because I wish it was in my hands. I say that. I really don't. But there are times which I want so desperately something. And yet I have to acknowledge, Lord, it's you alone. Paul is praying. Lord, help them to see and understand what? Not just what to do. But him. Him. Now, there's a famous quote by C.S. Lewis, and I probably won't get it right. It says something like this. I believe in Christianity as I believe in the sun. Not just because I can see it, but because by it I see everything else. So think about that. I believe in Christianity like I believe in the sun. Not S-O-N, S-U-N. Sun in the sky. Not just because I can see the sun, but because by the sun I can see everything else. Now, it's amazing whenever God enlightens our mind like this, how it does color the world altogether different than what it used to. Now, I want you to note about this letter, or about this prayer, and, and this is not the way I intended to go here, but notice about this prayer, and I want to emphasize this. He's not teaching this to young, immature, backslidden Christians. He is teaching this lesson to Christians who later in the book of Revelation has told they lost their first love, so at one time they were grounded and rooted well. I believe he's talking about this time. They were grounded and rooted very well. And yet, despite their standing, having been rooted in Christ really well, and having perhaps a knowledge themselves which surpassed many of the other churches that he wrote to, he is still praying desperately for them that God would unveil more. And that more was about the person of Jesus. And then he tells us what? There's five things that he gets to, and I'm not going to get to all of them. I'm going to try this morning. First in verse 18, he says this, The eyes of your understanding may be enlightened, so you might have light in your heart that you did not previously have, that you may know what is the hope of his calling. Now, when I read this, my mind immediately goes to you young people. I don't think necessarily that it should, but it does. Because here I'll tell you the deceit that Satan does, especially with our young people, in regards to living a life that is set apart for Jesus Christ. What he does is he embellishes 
all the glories and pleasures and benefits of a life lived for self. And he is an excellent embellisher of half-truths. And so he paints this picture. Whatever your interest is, I don't care what it is. Whatever your interest is, that if you will sell your soul to something, he paints it so lofty that, and then he shows you all the people who are walking that direction. And from a carnal standpoint, based upon your current perception of how you see the world, that decision seems both most practical and beneficial to you and all around you. And so, in the privacy of your thoughts, in the conversations you have about your future, all the enticements of the world will look great. And at the same time while he's doing that, he overemphasizes the slights and failures of us here. So he paints a picture about the present state of things. And he paints a picture about how boring church can often be. And he paints a picture of all these things that are making it diminished and small. And then, like he did to Jesus in the temptation, he sets the two out before you. And to the carnal mind, the answer is perceived self-evident. Well, of course I would choose the path that everybody's taking that's offering me the greatest pleasures that I could ever experience in life. And I am foregoing whatever that is. Here, a key point of Paul's prayer and the next three things that he mentions is that you might see what God has designed for the Christian and their life here and their life to come. And the first thing that he mentions, and I'm going to stop after this because the next two are, are, there's too much to try to even get to this morning. You may know the hope of your calling. You may know the hope. The certain expectation. We don't, now, many of you know this, but some of you may not. The word hope doesn't mean what we use it to be. Hope, the way we use it, is like I'm crossing my fingers it could happen or it could not happen. Right? Hope, when used in the New Testament in the King James Version of the Bible, means something that is certain to come to pass. It is something I can count on, a certain expectation. Now, the matter of when, I don't know. But it is certainly, it is the end of my faith. It's hope. Had that hope that God is going to come back. That doesn't mean I'm crossing my fingers. I know he is. It's just a matter of when. The hope of your calling. So here's what me, the preacher, gets up and tells you. Here's what the church tells you. You're going to find or you can find great purpose in serving the Lord. You're going to lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth cannot corrupt and thieves cannot break through and steal. You can find yourself to be a player in the game of God's providence. Which is a pretty amazing thing to be. Have you ever as a Christian been at the right place at the right time with exactly what needs to be said and done to the right people? It's the most incredible experience that you'll ever have in your life if you've never been there. I think as Paul was standing on Mars Hill, coincidentally, 
standing on Mars Hill, there with all the, Ath- the Athenians gathering around to talk about all these theories and all these philosophies. There he was, awaiting his friends at the right place, at the right time, and he begins to speak. And thousands of years later, I can feel the power that resonates from his message through the Holy Spirit. Let me tell you, in the world, you don't find that. So here's what he's praying for them. That they'll come to realize and experience the hope of their calling. So young person, here's what I tell you. There are things that God has promised you. He'll provide for you the right spouse if you'll trust him. He'll be a steady, the steady rock in the midst of a storm that would otherwise shipwreck you. Here are all these things that I can tell you. And yet my prayer for you is that you would come to realize the hope of that calling. That you would grasp, that you would come to deeply understand and therefore act in accordance with that understanding. Because what I realize is that no no matter how much that I paint the Christian life accurately and what God promises to you, nothing will convince your heart save the Spirit of God. Oh, and the two alternatives lead to vastly different places. I heard this one time. Pretty awkward place to stop a message, but that's what I'm going to do. I heard this one time was the attitude of a, a friend that I had. She said, you know, I look at the Christian life and I look at all the things that church is telling me to do. And, and I guess what I'm thinking is, you know what? No matter what, I'm going to heaven. Like I got that crossed off my list. And so, I mean, and what she was implying was this. If I got the most important thing, are really all the other blessings that important? Are they that glorious and wonderful? And truly what she was implying is that, no, the other things offered to me are better. And that is someone that I now know had not realized the hope of their calling. That is somebody with veiled eyes groping for something that is not really there in the darkness. And always being promised by some voice, it's there, just keep reaching. It's there, just keep reaching. It'll come to you. Everybody's, everybody's doing it. Everybody's groping this way. This morning, so many things I could say about our message, and I um, apologize for how cluttered it has been today. I would say two things in closing. Number one, look at Paul's example of how he prays. Really study it. Really learn it. Really contemplate it. Is that how you pray for others? Secondly, I would say this. The heart of his prayer is that there is more available to you and to me. And I am... I want to reach for the more. I want you to reach for the more. If you want, I'll help you reach for the more. And I mean it. You don't know how to study your Bible? 
Let's get together once a month, once every two weeks, and let's learn together. You struggle in prayer? Let's meet over here every week, just the two of us, and pray. Let's reach for the more. Let's pray for more enlightening, that God would grant us something that we personally presently lack. And I mean that in an instructional, not a rebuking way. There is more. I've often wondered when I get to heaven, it won't be there because there won't be sorrow. I don't know that it won't be there. I'm sure God can do what he pleases. It would seem to invoke sorrow if I left something on the table while I was here. Like that was, you know, do you understand what I'm saying? If there was more for me down here in this life, and I never grabbed it because I was never reaching for it, and then I get to heaven and God says, so much more. Look. Now, in my present makeup, that would get a lot of guilt and sorrow. Maybe God could show me that and somehow inspire me to his greatness, perhaps. Um, I hope the Lord will use that message for your good. That prayer has always meant a lot to me and pray that we could study it even more when the time comes.